this podcast, the tagline could be useless yet informative. (laughs) (laughs) So last time we did a, or I I gave you a little pop quiz. That's right. And you did um, pretty well on it, I would say. You you did one better than me. Okay. I I do consider that very well then. (laughs) Yeah. But a listener was messaging me on, on Instagram. I think he prefers to be anonymous. But... He had a question which, you know, was slightly tongue in cheek, but I took it in stride and I'll ask it to you. Do you consider yourself a music expert? (laughs) No, no, (laughs) not at all. Okay. We were talking about the quiz. Well, specifically how I said that I didn't know which two instruments came in after the flute in Bolero. (laughs) So this is is why the the question was a bit snarky, but... I mean, I have this um, life, not a life motto but kind of like an outlook that experts are usually clueless (laughs) like expert is not a compliment Hmm. the experts said apple was doomed to fail right (laughs) you know yeah i consider myself a passionate student and lover of music and there's nothing i love more than like having epic late night conversations about music and thinking about things i didn't think about i love discovering new music for the first time yeah, so it's like I consider myself maybe a good music student, hmm. and that's how I like to be. And I think, you know, again, the so-called experts, so-called great minds would never have thought of themselves that way. Like Da Vinci, people that know what they're talking about, called Da Vinci the greatest student of all time, hmm. right? And I think that's the way to look at it. I mean, for example, right, on this podcast, Streeter, in this past year and a half, two years-ish, I've learned a ton. yeah. Yeah. Right. And I, I'm willing to bet the same as with you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's kind of the lens I look at it from. And I think, too, what he was getting at is what makes being a student interesting in any broad topic, such as music, is that it can often be comical and entertaining in a cheeky way. Just the hilarious holes you have <laughs> in your knowledge. <laughs> yeah. You have to choose to specialize to some degree when a topic is so broad. At some point, you can't just continue studying everything on an equal platform. You have to choose, all right, I'm going to be really into even just something like jazz or 19th century sonata repertoire. I love the fact that almost by being an expert, if you want to use that word, if you want to specialize as a better word, I think in some area of a big genre, there's inevitably going to be marbles missing from another one and and that's what i love about these conversations right i totally agree that i don't consider myself an expert on music at all yeah and i'd be wary of anyone that does yeah you know? <laughs> especially music because it's it's really a field that doesn't even have experts i don't think i mean they're professionals i mean i consider myself yeah. a music professional i can show up and play my sure. flute at a professional standard but i'm not an expert you know right and it's like with any field the more you know the more you know you don't know right like i always think math is an interesting case study in that where Rattata's math is just, you know, the set of things you need to know or should know, right? And then you know them and now you know math, right? That's the way we teach it in schools, which is not correct, obviously, because you talk to any mathematicians, you know, they talk about math as this realm of mystery and endless beauty and unanswered questions, right? And if you get two math majors or mathematicians in a room with each other, they'll start arguing before you know it, right? <laughs> Maybe I would even accidentally call one of them a math expert, but the experts know there's no such thing as an expert. Yeah, yeah. We're all just amateurs in the truest sense of the word, as in we're just lovers of music. From the Latin, what, amor or? Amat? I think we should ask a linguistics expert. Yeah, yeah, we should, we should ask a Latin expert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Schreeder. It is, of course, October. And what is October without Halloween? And what is Halloween without scary music? We've had a few of these sorts of episodes where we pose a question and kind of see where it takes us, using it more or less as a springboard. We had the What is Christmas Music one. We had the What is American Music one for Fourth of July. So the question that you actually had as an idea for today was, what makes music scary? Obviously, you were thinking about Halloween, but I'm curious what got you thinking about that in the first place. It is partly Halloween, and it's partly mm. all of the talk of horror movies in the air and all the places like grocery stores playing kind of, you know, quote-unquote scary music. And mm-hmm. yeah, the thought that came to me was that so much of the music that is associated with something that's scary is not actually scary music. That got me thinking about, is there anything about music that can be inherently scary? And how much of that is actually prevalent in quote-unquote scary music? So a good example of this, and actually this is what got me thinking about it, is the Toccata and Fugue in D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach. Not the one by by Berlioz. No, (laughs) not quite. listening to it and and it's so often used as a as an example of scary music and yeah i'm not sure that there's anything all that scary about it inherently a lot of what's doing the work with stuff like that is is really associations that we make make with it right so the the music ends up signaling to us that something is scary because we know that that's the scary tune right we have certain associations with things like organs that make us think of scary music but it's not music that necessarily puts you on edge you know, yeah. so like if you went to a recital and someone was playing the Toccata and Fugue in D minor, you wouldn't necessarily be scared. You would just think, oh, yeah, that's that scary tune. Right. Yeah. So that's what got me asking the question. What actually makes music scary in the sense that you feel viscerally scared? You know? Yeah. Yeah. The organ is interesting. And we had an episode, right, where we talked all about how freaking epic the organ is. Oh, right? yeah. How yeah. Badass of an instrument it is with the organ. Yeah. So it's funny in the way like a lot of our ties and associations with music have come about is with hollywood and films and i'm not saying that's a bad thing if anything that's a cool great thing and even before we talk about that though the Toccata and fugue in d minor what a marvelous piece of music that mm-hmm. is i've never actually been to a live performance of it but i i really want to hear it performed on organ in a nice giant cathedral or something and and of course everyone knows the famous opening of the Toccata. But the fugue is so gorgeous and beautiful and complex and, and it's been arranged or some great brass ensemble arrangements of it and stuff that I've I've played. What a masterpiece of beauty and structure, you know, in the way that Bach <laughs> always is. Yeah. It's an interesting fugue too, because you can roughly split Bach's fugues into two categories, one of which is is more choral and, and one of which is more instrumental, right? So it's a very yeah. instrumental fugue. The subject is, you couldn't sing it. Yeah. So it's a very virtuosic fugue and it's an interesting one. Yeah, no, okay. Yeah, no, absolutely.
What's interesting about the organ and why it's scary, I forget the exact original films it was, but it was one of the, I want to say, original Frankenstein films or Dracula films as well, where they play the organ. <laughs> like the, hmm. the villain plays the organ in their castle. It's been a thing, right? Villains play organs, right? <laughs> uh, the Phantom of the Opera, if, if you want to call him the villain. I think the Phantom of the Opera is the villain, but Eric is the, the guy behind the mask, is the guy that you feel pity for. Exactly, I exactly. So, that's that's for the people who read the novel, though. So that's... that's. But in Love Never Dies, you'll know... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the sequel is terrible. Dude, that sequel is so... <laughs> we have to cut that, it, but... It takes, place in, <laughs> it takes place on Coney Island. Oh, right? yeah, I forgot about that, yeah. So, yeah, the family of the opera plays the organ. Who else? <sighs> the guy in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean with all the tentacles. I want to call him Tommy Lee Jones, but no, it's, uh, <laughs> is it Davy Lee Jones or is it... Davy Jones, name of, Davy Jones. Davy Jones, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Davy, <laughs> Davy Lee Jones. <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> and Will Smith. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that's a Photoshop waiting to happen. Yeah, okay, well, but yeah, he plays the organ. And why we associate the organ with being scary is not so much because of the organ itself, but because of who's playing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Where if you're an organist, you have to spend a lot of time by yourself in seclusion. Right. Because the organ back room where you actually play it is not in the main nave of the cathedral. Often, at least you have to practice at weird hours, as we talked about. Right. In, in universities, you have to reserve your organ practice time. So you, you spend a lot of time by yourself like a Dracula would. Also, just the power of the organ. This instrument, you know, back in the old days of Europe, you know, it could be heard throughout the whole city of Paris, right? Just the organ. One person has the power of an orchestra under their fingers and can control every every little thing, right? Every note, every every dynamic, every stop. So it's those things combined that makes the organ perfect for a villain. And Hollywood, I think, just kind of ran with that because it makes sense and it makes for good storytelling and you get an excuse to, you know, some great music in your film that you don't have to pay for because it's public domain <laughs> so i'm not the one who came up with this this conclusion i think it, this has been talked about a lot in the past like why we have this firm association with the organ and halloween and scary music this is a stronger association than we usually have for any other specific instrument in a specific genre or emotion hmm. i think there's a lot of legwork being done just by the cultural associations, like you said. And that's a good thing because the point of music is to is to make you feel and think certain things. And that's the point of all art, right? And the, the more like associative power that something has, the more you can condense something into a simple image, right? So it's, it's a very powerful tool to have in our cultural repertoire that we can all sort of reference, at least in America. I'm not sure how much the organ has these associations in, I don't know, say Honduras, but... <laughs> Right, right, you know, yeah. It very well maybe peculiarly a, a Hollywood thing. But if I may sort of zoom out a bit, in this question about what makes music scary, I kind of want to reframe it a little bit, just because music doesn't exist in a in a vacuum, right? It's, it's noise just like anything else. It's organized noise, like I said, that's designed to make you think and feel something. So as I was sort of sitting down before we did this episode and I was thinking about what makes music scary, I, I was thinking about what makes what makes anything scary, mm. right? And I think that's an interesting question to ask. And I kind of did some Googling and I found a quote by Stephen King. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Oh, I, I thought you were about to ask if I'm familiar with Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. No, that would be an insult. Apparently he lives too in like a haunted house in Maine. No way. That's that's on brand. That's unsurprising. yeah. yeah. 
So I found this quote by Stephen King, who I think we can more or less agree, he more than most people knows what makes things scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The quote is, the three types of terror, the gross out, the sight of a severed head tumbling down a flight of stairs, it's when the lights go out and something green and slimy splatters against your arm. The horror, the unnatural, spiders the size of bears, the dead waking up and walking around, it's when the lights go out and something with claws grabs you by the arm. And the last and worst one, terror, when you come home and notice everything you own had been taken away and replaced by an exact substitute. It's when the lights go out and you feel something behind you, you hear it, you feel its breath against your ear, but when you turn around, there's nothing there. Mm. And I absolutely love that. And I was trying to, I have a little like flow chart here because I was trying to sort of <laughs> riff on like what, how are ways that music can sort of emulate these three kinds of things, right? I love this categorization. So between the gross out, the horror and the terror, I think the the two that are similar are the gross out and the horror, right? They are yeah. like events. There are things that that are kind of happenings. So in horror movies, you know, this could be like gore, this could be, you know, jump scares, horrible imagery. And in music, you know, you can imagine certain sort of classic horror movie noises like really high-pitched violins that are sort of distorted. Um, yeah. really sudden like changes in dynamics. This isn't really music, but nails on a chalkboard is kind of like a gross out sound, right? Yeah. You, it's not scary per se, but your your spine kind of tingles and everything's kind of the, the hairs on the back of your hand stand up. Right. Um, or if I could add into that real quick, just the use of pure silence. Yes, yeah, silence when it where it is unexpected is it can be yeah. can be like that too. Yeah. So what are some other ones like like su- sudden extremes of both quietness and loudness? Mm-hmm. But the real soul of horror, I think, is actually in the terror. It's like it's the creepy feeling, right? Yeah. Um, it's in the. It's like without the the build up to the horror, you don't get the payoff of how scary something actually is. And that's where I think is a lot of interestingness about like how music emulates this kind of creepy terror feeling. And I think it all comes down to to ambiguity because that's kind of the biggest word mm. that comes to mind when I think of something common between all music that is that is kind of like creepy sounding music you know there's a lot of ambiguity like it's it's chords that don't resolve maybe chords that don't even necessarily have a resolution that's proper chords that you don't really parse as as proper chords sounds that you can't really place you know like if it's a like an instrument playing very much out of its range say like a flute playing very low, like a very low flute or a very high string instrument. Or violinist playing right up on the bridge. Yeah, exactly. Like the famous Psycho scene. Exactly, exactly. Lots of, you know, like diminished chords. Ambient noise, like randomness is very good for that, you know? That's why, like, you know, there's almost nothing scarier than found footage horror movies because often the soundtrack is just silence with, like, occasional rustling somewhere, like in the Blair Witch Project, you know? That that can really get you on edge. So probably one of the most iconic moments of horror scoring is the curtain scene in Psycho, right? Yeah, right. The, the, sorry, the, the shower scene in Psycho. Yeah. Um, but you're right. The first sound of that scene is the sound of the curtain Yeah, being draped over, which almost blends perfectly with the violin sound. Yeah. Exactly. So it's scored by Bernard Herrmann. And it's, it is such a great example of all of these tactics sort of being used in one, right?
Have you ever seen this video of the cat watching the horror movie? No, I haven't. I'm going to have to send this to you. Um, okay. I believe it's a video of a cat, and and it's watching... It's not the shower scene, but it is the ending, I think, when... Of Psycho? Of Psycho, yeah. Yeah. The original. Are, are we talking about the... Yes. Are we talking about yes. the remake? <laughs> not, not exactly. <laughs> okay, good. Um, we might have to end the podcast right there. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. I'm going to go on and on about the Psycho remake. But no, give it a chance. It's really good. <laughs> Almost as good as the Rebecca remake. That <laughs> <laughs> came out on Netflix last year. Yeah, yeah. There's actually a few Rebecca remakes. So. Oh, yeah. really? Oh, God. Yeah, I, there's a couple. I, man, that just ruined my day hearing that. But so I sent you this video and it's I think it's a great example because it's so, you know, again, if we're, if we're talking about something inherently scary in music, then my mind jumps to is it human association or can we even scare other animals? Right. Because mm, if we can scare yeah. other animals, there's like a there there. Right. Because a cat isn't going to be yeah. scared by like an organ the same way that we are, because the cat doesn't know what Hollywood is. So this yeah. is it's all to do with the music. And I think the, the visual cues that it's getting. So I'm curious what you if you watch this video, I'm curious what you think. Sure, here, I'm gonna watch it right now. These sort of low murmuring strings that are almost like ambient noise, but they're playing notes that you don't really parse as notes with chords and harmonies that you don't really parse as musical structures, the way that like tuned by Mozart, you know? Mm -hmm. You hear the beginning, middle, end of it. So it's like creating this sort of ambiguity. And then you get the sort of horror, right? Like there's the suddenness, the sound that's like, it goes from essentially just murmuring to a really loud, high-pitched noise. It's just absolutely, um, it's a masterclass on how to, how to be scary. Mrs. Bates. That's really funny, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So, yeah, the cat gets really scared and into the scene and ends by being a cat and jumping away. Yeah. Kind of funny how we associate a cat with being a Halloween animal. But, <laughs> but they're really scared, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, a few things on that. So with the shower scene in Psycho, that might be the most famous scene in the history of film. Mm, yeah. Right. It's at least in the top five. Oh, right? for sure. It's just, yeah. Even if I say shower scene, you know exactly what <laughs> what this is, right? Yeah. And apparently Hitchcock wanted just silence for that scene. He didn't want any score at mm. all. And Hitchcock knew how to use silence, right? For some of the birds, there's no music yeah. at all, right? But yeah, it was apparently um, a point of contention in the making of that film. Bernard Herrmann insisted there actually be music there. Him and Bernard Herrmann were close collaborators. They did North by Northwest together. They also did Vertigo together. Bernard Herrmann went on, I mean, he did Citizen Kane. He's one of the great, great film composers. The Day yeah. the Earth Stood Still, not the remake. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love that Stephen King quote about what scares us. Terror was the third one, right? Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's scary inherently is a context we're not expecting, if this makes sense. So let's look at the opening to Psycho. It's that beautiful overture composed by Bernard Herrmann. And I think it's for a string sextet, a little bit bigger than a string quartet. So it might be six instruments playing. And it's actually hauntingly beautiful, which I think is the scariest kind of scary. It's almost gorgeous and you can't stop listening to it. And when I say like string chamber music, 
this is not what you think of, right? Mm -hmm. You think of a Mozart quartet, but this is this is rhythmic, almost percussive, mm -hmm. right? In the same way, the psycho shower scene is has a percussiveness to it, even though it's played by violins. Right, so I think it's the shift of context where it's not where we expect it to be. I think that's what really turns on our, our natural evolved flight or fight instincts. And when you're in the chair of a movie theater, you can't do either. So, so I think that starts to get at what is inherently scary. What part of the human natural psyche that we all have does this tap into? I think that's the start of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think this kind of lacking of context that's kind of creepy um, the shift of context it's like the the sense of not really knowing how to feel about something you know we have safety and then we have straight up fear right like there's a mountain lion chasing me and those are both kind of relatively stable emotions right right um, when you're when you're running for your life from a mountain lion yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're that's not exactly the place where the creepy part of your brain operates yeah, yeah. So, you're, you're not confused right right you know exactly what's going on <laughs> yeah um, and that's why things like things like masks are really creepy, right? Yeah. Um, because even if it's a mask that's like, you know, you look at these old um, Halloween costumes from... Oh, like, I thought you meant COVID masks. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, <I'm> no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I've seen a couple of kind of creepy COVID masks, but... <laughs> But yeah, you, you know, you look at these like old Halloween costumes from the from the twenties or something like that, and they're really creepy because they're like homemade masks. And even if the mask is of a smiling face, the fact that it covers your face and you don't know what you know, there's a sort of social context that's lost because you're not you're not aware of um, what the person underneath the mask might actually be doing. That gives it a sort of creepiness, right? And this is where the uncanny valley comes in as well. I'm not sure what's the best way to describe it, but when something is kind of like a robot or something is close to human likeness but not quite there it's actually much more creepy than anything that actually just looks like a straight-up robot because that little bit of ambiguity contextlessness you know that's kind of the terrifying aspect of it as you said a little bit earlier when the core doesn't resolve the way you want it to or the ending is unclear right humans we naturally like having answers that's where religion comes from right <laughs> when we couldn't explain why it rained right so yeah. it's our uncomfortableness with not knowing that scares us yeah. right and associations are built on top of associations right because that psycho score the music to the film psycho it's haunting it's scary but it's also so beautiful Again, that overture, that singing melody is just, uh, it's, it's so great. And especially juxtaposed with the percussiveness of the string instruments. Again, not percussion instruments, string instruments. And then, of course, John Williams had to look at that when he was, when he was writing the score for Jaws, mm -hmm. right? That percussive shark theme that's played by basses and strings. And then just in Jaws as well, everyone thinks Jaws is, you know, the two notes going back and forth, dum, 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 dum. And that's the score of Jaws. But no, if you actually listen to the whole score of Jaws or pay attention when you're watching the film, 
there's this gorgeous singing orchestral string melody singing on top of all these, you know, intense scenes and stuff. That's, that's beautiful. And you would think is from a symphony by Prokofiev or something, but no, it's part of one of the scarier movies. It's also funny with, again, the talk of a shift of context. When you get to more avant-garde composers doing things with um, less traditional instruments, like if you get to some of the stuff, I think of Ligeti or Stockhausen, where it's the instrument being used for, for something is like a bow on like an iron rod, has mm. like that eerie, screechy sound to it. People would be like, oh, atonal avant-garde music and boo, you know, w walk out of the concert hall. But in a way, no horror quote film would be complete without that sound. Yep. Right. I think I've said this on the podcast before, but it's, I find it amazing that horror movies have sort of given the Hungarian avant-garde a new lease on life. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, people like us lo love this music anyway. We would go see um, Ligeti in a concert hall, but these people have been plucked from obscurity by Hollywood, by yeah. the most unlikely people in Hollywood, too. The thing that I think makes Hitchcock's movie so scary, I don't want to use that word, but so emotional and so captivating. Because again, you could call these movies scary, but at the same time, you don't want to look away, right? Mm. Almost in the same way Parasite was. Like Parasite felt like such a Hitchcock film yeah, in so many yeah. ways. And there are so many cues taken. Bong Joon-ho openly admitted, and anyone who studied Hitchcock would know, oh yeah, that's, that is definitely a Hitchcock shot, yeah. cut, style. But the thing that I think think makes Hitchcock's movies so frightening in a cool way is they tap into the truths about human psychology and how we are as individuals and a collective that are uncomfortable and we don't like to embrace. When you look at a Rear Window, which what a marvelous film. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, Possibly my favorite Hitchcock. Yeah, with the score by Franz Voxman, who we've mm -hmm. discussed on the podcast. Even though there's not too much music in it. It's mostly not music, yeah. only like the opening part. There's. I was actually going to say when music. you mentioned um, how the birds had no music, I was going to say Rear Window is also largely silent. There, yeah. There's an overture, and I think there's, there's some soundtracking for some of it, but it is a largely silent movie. And again, Spoiler City, even though we won't spoil too much, probably says this you know, on the, on the front cover, but the only reason he's able to witness what he witnesses and be a good member of society and was by spying on his neighbors outside his window right and it's also funny to put that in historical context that came out in the early 60s late 50s early 60s or something when the u.s government was kind of encouraging people to spy on their neighbors during the red scare and and who amongst your neighborhood could be a communist spy and stuff hmm. so you know it's a kind of an uncomfortable conclusion you come to you look at Films like Rebecca, which we've also talked about in the podcast. Yeah, marvelous film. His first film he made in Hollywood. And only the only film he won an Oscar for, it won the, I think, 19, 
already Oscar for Best Picture. Yeah. Also the score by Franz Voxman. Mm-hmm. And what a lush, it's, rich score that one is. Oh, it's beautiful, yeah, isn't yeah. it? I mean, it's just, what a gorgeous, again, hauntingly beautiful. I, I keep coming back to that phrase, but these scores by Voxman and Bernard Herrmann and such, yeah, it's just gorgeous, but not in the way everything else is gorgeous. But yeah, so Rebecca, right? It's about, you know, a guy that lost his wife and is trying to move on. But the mental trappings that that comes with and the easy road you can go down and how it can affect other people close to you, right? Again, these are just natural probes into the human condition, right? That we can all relate to and we all know are true. But we don't like to talk about it. (laughs) And and you're kind of forced to think about it and, and witness it. I think Hitchcock and Truffaut actually talked about this together in that long interview that, that Truffaut did of, with Hitchcock. But the reason that the horror of Hitchcock is evergreen, more than a lot of sort of more modern horror movies with, you know, gimmicks and creatures and demon kids, is because Hitchcock is really in the business of exploring, to reappropriate a phrase, the banality of evil. He is sort of obsessed with the everyman, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Like, look at the opening the opening scene for, for Psycho while the overture is happening. It's like this zoom in from, like, the grid of the city to the big apartment building or the hotel, I don't know, and, and then zoom into this window. You know, these could be any two people that this, you know, horrible right. thing is about to happen to. No, exactly. I mean, Vertigo, it's really just about the, the natural phenomenon of obsession. Who hasn't been obsessed with something or someone or it's just part of human psyche? Yeah, the landscapes of the soul that Hitchcock explores are, are kind of in that area, right? Yeah, exactly. Solzhenitsyn said the line dividing good and evil is not between us, but it's in all of us, right? Mm-hmm. It's a very thin line. If you care to go to that part of your brain, it's a really, really easy place to access some really messed up thoughts. And I think Hitchcock lives there. Yeah, His characters live there, even though they're pretty much all like fairly normal people. Right. And if you look at Hitchcock's casting decisions, so often, not always, but I I think very often in his films, he tried to cast actors and actresses who could so well portray the everyday folk. That's why he loved working with Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant, right? These are like the, the George Clooney's or the Matt Damon's of their era, right? Just the everyday folk that people love. What makes Vertigo so terrifying is, yeah, you're seeing, and of course, if you put yourself back in the 60s, right, you're seeing an actor everyone knows and loves and has made made such family classic films, <laughs> but you're seeing him go down the dark side, right, and realizing that could happen to him. Right? Yeah. The same with like Cary Grant in North by Northwest, right? He's just kind of an average Joe that gets tied off in this messy situation. Yeah. And also, North by Northwest, again, score by Bernard Herrmann. Brilliant score. Apparently, Cary Grant was in the running to be James Bond a few years later. Oh, that would have been interesting. Yeah, there's an interesting video. It's a quick side note. I I can send it, and we can put it in the show notes if anyone's curious. But it's a really fascinating video basically explaining how North by Northwest is the first Bond film. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and he even introduces himself as Thornhill, Roger Thornhill. You know, oh, so the, you're right. Yeah, there's there's this theory, and Hitchcock was talking about one too. I mean, he was a British guy who knew Ian Fleming. Yeah, right. He was he wanted to direct James Bond. If you watch North by Northwest, and yeah, you just think it's a an audition tape to direct Bond. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that's that sounds about right. Similar to the reason that I think Hitchcock's movies are creepy in like an evergreen way, I think the the scores are the same, right? Horror movie scores that rely too much on, let's say, like the gross out and the horror elements sure. of like of like yeah. scary music, you know, like too, too There's much. Many on. of those, yeah. Yeah, I don't think those scores are very long lasting because it's it's kind of like a joke, right? The reason that most of the people that you know are not that funny and it's it's it is really a horror to listen to them telling the story is because um most people yeah. think that the funny part of a story is the punchline and that is the part that gets the laugh but the really funny and important part of a story is a setup right right and it's the same with with the music the scary part of the music is not in that loud violin hit that you get at the end it's it's in how you right. build up to it in all the sort of um, ambiguous musical moments leading up to it and people like boxman and and herman were you know total geniuses at that and when coupled with Hitchcock's imagery it makes for I think really compelling art that is genuinely terrifying in like a way that's um, robust you will be a little bit freaked out every time you watch Rear Window because there's something true there and the the real you know quote-unquote horror part of it really just happens for a few minutes at the end Uh, and it's not even that bad it's not even that scary but you're on edge the whole time well, what's funny about Hitchcock films, too, is how often the ending ends almost in a joke. Yeah. Rear Window's kind of like that. North by Northwest is kind of like that. Like, it's there's almost a funny ending to it. Yeah. Uh, not all the time. Like, uh, yeah, Vertigo, isn't it? <laughs> it speaks to what we were saying about the setup being really the mo- most important part. I think Hitchcock um, has in common with both some of the most funny people and also the most uh, terrifying people, which is that he knows exactly when to... To let go of the story, right? So someone like like uh, like Monty Python, they know, you know, if you, if you watch The Flying Circus, they're constantly letting go of bits, right? They find themselves, you know, four minutes into a bit and they hit a point where the funniness of it has been exploited. But the, the natural progression of the plot that they've sort of artificially got themselves into has not yet reached its conclusion, right? But it has stopped being funny. A lesser group of artists would have tried to close out the plot in some way, but Monty Python often they'll just they'll just cut the scene and like a knight will walk in, break the fourth wall with a rubber chicken and hit him over the head, and the scene ends right because right. it has stopped being useful. And I think Hitchcock is the same way. A lesser yeah. artist than him would have tried to wrap things up more neatly, maybe more um, mm. more in a sort of traditional way. Like it's it's interesting how close to the ending the quote-unquote climax of Hitchcock's movies happen, right? The point at which, like most movies, especially horror movies, reach climactic points before the last 10 minutes, right? They usually have some sort of winding down. There's a traditional sort of um, three-act structure in the screenplay, right? right? Yeah. 
And and Hitchcock flaunts that often, but he doesn't care. He doesn't because the scary part is over. The part where he's inducing terror is throughout the whole movie. You've been terrified this yeah. whole time, and now it has you know stopped being all that useful. So he usually just sort of he usually comes up yeah. with an arbitrary ending, and you're out of the movie, right? It can be off-putting to some people that I I know. It makes it feel more real, I think. Yeah. We've talked about pieces that are scary, but maybe shouldn't be. We talked about how pieces become scary. We talked about how pieces make other things scary, like films, <laughs> how, how scores make a film scarier. But as far as a piece that is itself supposed to be scary <laughs> and was designed just to be Halloween in its own is the Danse Macabre by Camille Saint-Saëns. It's a beautiful, cool, fun piece, but it's you could probably explain it better than me. It's Was it based off a poem or a painting or a book? I have no idea. So I'm on the Wikipedia. Oh, do it. Speaking Sweet. of speaking of not being music experts. We are Wikipediaing things on the fly on this show. <laughs> <laughs> it, started, it started as an art song for voice and piano. And it was based on a poem, which itself was based on an old French superstition. <laughs> superstition by Stevie Wonder. <laughs> Deep cut. Yeah. <laughs> so according to legend, death appears at midnight every year on Halloween. Death calls forth the dead from their graves to dance for him while he plays his fiddle here represented by a solo violin. His skeletons dance for him until the rooster crows at dawn when they must return to their graves until the next year. The piece opens with a harp playing a single note, D, 12 times, 12 strokes of midnight, which is accompanied by soft chords from the string section. The solo violin enters playing the tritone, which is known as the Diabolos in Musica, the devil in music. There's something like bashful and cheery about it, which I always kind of loved about Halloween. I know in Mexico they have the Day of the Dead, right? Which is not the same as Halloween, but it's where they do celebrate the dead that have gone and family members and friends that are no longer around. And they use skeletons and stuff in their symbolism and culture, but they don't view it as a scary holiday. They view it as kind of a, cel a celebratory holiday. You know, you eat food, you get together with family, and you party, right? Which, I mean, that last part is still true on Halloween here, but... Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so what I love about this piece, Dance Macabre, is um, it's kind of like that, right? It's it's in three, it's in three, four. So it has that one, two, three, one, two, three kind of waltz uh, meter going on throughout it. But it's definitely not a Viennese waltz. It's kind of a, if you close your eyes and imagine a bunch of skeletons laughing and dancing in a fun way, you would probably imagine this piece. When I think of Halloween music, this is the first thing I think of. <laughs> I think that's a really good point. It's not scary per se it doesn't make the it, it doesn't make you sort of have goosebumps or anything like that there's nothing chilling in it 
it's a really cool violin part, right? Yeah. That solo violin. And you have to tune your violin differently to hit that tritone the right way. You could do it, I think, with actually fingering the notes on the fingerboard. But I think to just get, you know, that open quality and get those full inter- intervals to project and stuff, you actually tune one of the strings to the, that interval of the tritone so you can just hit it with the bow. I, I didn't know that. That's that's really cool. I would be curious to know how much of that context is still is still present, right? Of the tritone being the devil's chord or, or something right, like that. Right. that. That's another thing where, where your association with it does a lot of the legwork, right? The tritone yeah. is it is a dissonant chord, but it's not it's not jarring, right? Right, right. I could play you a dissonant chord if you want to hear one, right? It's yeah, like... and it doesn't happen in this case. It doesn't happen. You know, it happens within like the normal register, right? It doesn't happen. Yeah, right. It doesn't happen freakily low or like really screechingly high. So it's not really a bad sound. You know, the way that the sound of what happens during the shower scene in Psycho. You know, that's yeah, that's a right, sound that right. that is kind of freaky, even if you just heard it when you were driving down the street, but. <laughs> Or maybe especially when you're driving down the street. It's funny. This piece is actually about the legends of October and Halloween. Almost like in our Christmas special, how when we were talking about there's all this Christmas music about Christmas trees. I mean, new and old, you know, jazz and classical about Christmas trees, about holiday times, gift giving, the nutcracker, all this stuff. But Handel's Messiah is like (laughs) actually a Christmas piece. It's about the New Testament. (laughs) And it uses that text. So... (laughs) Yeah. So what you're saying is, is that the dance macabre is basically Messiah for Halloween. Exactly. Yeah. It's the pumpkin Messiah. I'm still here on the Wikipedia page. I'm seeing some... Interesting things that I can read if you... Yeah, yeah, it's here. Okay. I'll take Dance Macabre for 600. All right. There's a direct quote played by the woodwinds of Dies Irae, a Gregorian chant from the Requiem. The Dies Irae is presented unusually in a major key. piece makes particular use of the xylophone to imitate the sounds of rattling bones. Interesting. Saint-Saëns used a similar motif in the fossils movement of the carnival of the animals. That's interesting. That's a connection I didn't make ah, before. I, I, really I knew about the fossils, like the sort of representation of the bones and fossils, but I didn't connect it to this piece. Okay, so this kind of half answers my question. It says here that when Dance Macabre was first premiered on January 24th, 1875, it was not well received and caused widespread feelings of anxiety. Huh. The 21st century scholar Roger Nichols mentions adverse reaction to, quote, the deformed Dies Irae plain song, the, quote, horrible screeching from solo violin, the use of a xylophone, and the, quote, hyp- hypnotic repetitions, in which Nichols hears a pre-echo of Ravel's bolero. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> We're back here. But that is interesting. That kind of half answers my question, which it seems in 1875 that these things were 
kind of scary you know yeah like the, the xylophones and the 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 um the messing with the ds ray you know uh to, to put it to to put it in a major key rather than rather than right. the traditional minor key um and then the screeching from the violin the tritones these are things that seem to actually have caused some anxiety and um, gave it a disrepute when it came out in 1875. But I think today, no one really has those associations anymore. I mean, most people don't even know what a DSCRA is. No, I actually performed this piece a few years ago. I played first or second trumpet. On okay. It. I think people liked it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Nowadays, it's uh, maybe even seen as a bit like kitty. Like I can imagine like yeah. a cutesy animation of like skeletons kind of dancing around, you know, made for kids, right? Well, someone made one on YouTube, actually. It's actually pretty good mm. and mm. pretty fun to watch and cool. I'm sure St. Song would have digged it. Yeah. How terrifying this piece must have been. Yeah, I think we, we underestimate how much the secularization of, of society has changed the context around what is scary. Nowadays, I think most people, even religious people, wouldn't really care. But in 1875, you know, that it actually was an affront to, to morality, right? Yeah. And, and something that, that maybe would have been considered to be causing sort of public disruption. In keeping with the way that Hitchcock has his movies, we've made our point. We can go in, get out, call it a day. Cue the credit music. <laughs> 